Uh, now, General, as you can see from the uh, questionnaire here, the first question is the effect uh, background, early life, reasons for joining the army, other ambitions in youth. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I had any very strong reasons for joining the army. My family lived abroad. They lived in Ceylon, and therefore I was in school, boarding school in England. And I went to school called Wellington College, which had a very strong military tradition. Although only about 20% of the boys went into the army. But by about the age of 15 or 16, I was tending towards the military. And I was not very bright, but I was quite good at maths and science, and therefore I thought Woolwich rather than Santos. Woolwich being slightly academically higher standard. And uh, therefore I was aiming to Woolwich, and then <coughs> originally I thought I might be a sapper, but I didn't think I was really, uh, really clever enough for that. So because my father had been a gunner in World War One, I, I thought I'd go for gunner. So that was how I started thinking about the army. And then, uh, this was just before the war, and the war was on the horizon, we're talking about 37, 38, 39. And I, I didn't take the entrance exam to Woolwich because it was, it was uh, cancelled just before the war, 39. And they said they would take people into Woolwich uh, with sufficiently high grades in mathematical and other sciences in uh, what, what then called a high school stipend, which is now A-levels. And I took uh, my A-levels in the summer of 39. <coughs> and then I went straight out to Ceylon to visit my uh, parents. I hadn't been out there in 10 years. And I went out there, and while I was out there, a war broke out. This was 239, I remember listening to it on the radio. <coughs> and then I couldn't get back immediately because shipping was a bit difficult. And uh, eventually I got a, a ship back from Colombo through the canal. One of the last people to go through the canal. Before the Italian joined the war. Yeah, this was um, uh, October 39. I got back to England about uh, October 39. Of course, the war was on. And, uh, I went back to school, I was just finishing school, and there was no, I passed my A-level, because so I was ready to go to Woolwich, but of course Woolwich was then closed. And they said anybody going to the army had to go through the ranks. Fair enough. <coughs> so I enlisted in London at number 12 reception unit, I remember, in London, when I took the Queen's shilling and swore an oath of allegiance, allegiance <coughs> and was then told to go away and do whatever I wanted to do until I was 19 which was the minimum date you could join up. So I was then uh, enlisted for one day and, and technically put on, on the reserve list, I think, as a, as, a, as a gunner, private soldier, and no pay anything. And then I went off somewhere else. So I had about six months to, no, seven months to fill in. Uh, so I went off and uh, I worked in a factory in Birmingham. Uh, I was on the factory floor uh, in, in the tool shop, making air rings and so on. I felt very interested in engineering. And I worked uh, pretty hard, actually, in the tool room as an ordinary apprentice in rovers, making animations. I did that for about uh, four months. Hard work, it was night shifts and everything else. But looking back, an incredibly good experience for me, because being at school, one was a bit limited in the experience of life and people. And there I was working alongside uh, the bunnies, marvellous people, you know, and I got to know that little type of people very well, and it, and it gave me a tremendous insight in dealing, speaking to all sorts of types of people. So I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And then come about, uh, well, what are we talking about, May, June, 1940, uh, thing was building up, of course, and I got uh, official papers from the Minister of Defence saying, report to uh, 
a gun and tag arrangement at Borden on the 18th of July, which was my 19th birthday. I went along to the foreman of the uh, two-room in the factory I was working. He said, no, I've got my papers now, I'll be off shortly. He said, oh, no, you're not, lad. And I said, why not? He said, oh, he said, you're, you're, in a, you're a skilled two-room grinder, and this is a, a reserved occupation. And I said, well, I only came here to fill in time. I, I, I list, listed something. He said, but no, lad, you're a... You're a skilled two-room gardener, you're a reserved occupation, and here you stay. Well, we want you. I said, oh, well, didn't argue with you, he's a tough fourth <laughs> And so um, I went back and uh, collected my insurance card and so on, and sent him in, in on boat to him, wished him a happy Christmas, and that was all I saw of him. And I gave him that paper and went on, I never heard any more. It showed how easy it was to become a reserved occupation. Yeah. I came by mistake. <clears throat> and now I went home. Up to Yorkshire, yeah, which is, I lived in Ripon with my grandparents. And then I had about two months, I think, before I actually went to the army. And they just formed the local defence volunteers then, which was a pre predecessor of the Home Guard. And so I thought, right, better go along in Ripon. So I enlisted. I was one of the very earliest, I think, local defence volunteers. We had a little badge on our arm saying LDV. And uh, we had real rifles. And I was, young, I was aged just under 19. The next chap was aged about 46, I think. He was an ex-Cots guardsman. And we paraded um, twice a week in the drill hall, Ripon. Night, marched through the town, fine body of men, <coughs> and um, guarded the telephone exchange against attack by uh, German parachutists. Amazing, <laughs> really. But it was, again, an interesting time. And uh, one sight... Other aspect that I, I was a motorcyclist and I had a motorcycle which had cost me two pounds, I think, bought from a no, uh, fellow factory worker at Birmingham, an old matchless. And I was given a, a little tin with two pints of petrol, like it was, maybe a bit more, which I wasn't allowed to open until the alarm, until the bells started ringing, which meant the Germans are coming. And then I had to uh, open the tin. Paul Petrol and motorcycle started, which is slightly problematical when it's very good. Right. Drive uphill to Studley, to Pardons Abbey, which was the local sector headquarters of Captain Manring from Dan's Army, and tell him that the Germans were coming in case he didn't know or the telephone was blocked or he was a bit deaf. And so that was my immediate uh, <laughs> Fortunately, I never had to do it. Um, so anyhow, that was interesting six weeks in the Home Guard, a Greek stroke LDV. I was, I, I could uh, drill and I could fire a rifle quite well. I was fairly competent and so forth. We did have rifles, we did shoot them. We were quite a, quite a, quite a impressive body, I think. Uh, looking back, I think we'd have stood and fought if things had happened. We didn't have pitchforks, we had proper kit. Had, had you done cadet training at Wellington? Yes, I'd been in the uh, cadet corps, uh, whatever they call it, OTC it was called, I think, those days. And I'd been, I think, uh, I think I was sergeant in that. And I enjoyed that thoroughly. So you, you, are you fired weapons? Oh, yes. On that I fired the three, and I was a good shot. I was in, I think, I reserved for school eight, and I shot at Bisley quite a lot, very long distances, you know, 800 yards. So I was very keen on weapon shooting and rifle shooting, so I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. So um, after that, uh, the next phase was uh, come late in July, I sent a train warrant and packed my kit and set off for. Uh, 
12th Field Training Regiment in Morton, Hampshire, where I had to report as a, as a civvy. Um, so a new phase of life started then. I marched through the gates and uh, was received. The usual shouting and, and uh, introduction of military life. <laughs> but it didn't phase you to the exact extent. You were grounded in this. Yes, I was quite happy with it. Uh, yes, I had a background and I was, I was clean and we were all very clean in that. The one or two older people uh, in our call-up group, we all, we all segregated, although the call-up included all types of people, national service or compulsory call-up, we very quickly, uh, the potential officers were sorted out into about 30 of us and put into one troop of potential officers. But we were treated exactly like ordinary gunners and our training was exactly the same. In fact, it was very much more severe than the others. And uh, but we, we, we got on together. But we mixed entirely with the, with the other soldiers. So although we were together in some ways, we were off the normal battery of training. And there we trained for, well, sadly, I was there for about 11 months, I think it was, slightly under 11. We should have only been there four months. Um, but for some reason, they lost my papers. And uh, to my irritation, uh, some of my fellow potential officers after we'd done our initial training, were sent off to Officer Cadet School, off to, and, and my papers went on being lost, and I kept being kept back with irritation. I got absolutely desperate about it. In fact, I remember one time I got so desperate I volunteered to be a rear gunner in the RAF, because most of you up saying volunteers for a car for air cover, like anything, just to get on with the war. Uh, and so, anyhow, that was turned down, but eventually we uh, got my paper through, and I think it was about January 1941, myself. I mean, we had got some quite good leadership training in the cadet corps at, um, at Wellington, and I had a, a confidence that, that I could do it, although there was always, I suppose there was a slight doubt, but not a very, not a very big one. Yeah, I, well, I was very confident that, uh, that, I, that I was enjoying what I was doing, and that I could, in fact, uh, master the technical things, and also the other rather grey area that I was capable of uh, of being an officer. I think that was always there in the back of my mind. And you, your fellows, uh, when you were undertaking the training, yeah. um, a mixed bag? Or, presumably uh, they were all keen, but they had their <coughs> different, different aptitudes? Yeah, totally a mixed bag. That was excellent, of course. I wouldn't have missed that training for the world. That is, and I was thinking, I mentioned being working in the factory, but I, working in the ranks was an experience which, uh, again, was extremely valuable. We were a total misbag. Some of them, I think the oldest was, I was whatever it is, 19, the oldest was about 31, I think, 30, something like that. He seemed an old man to us. Uh, and not them were married, poor chaps. And, and, uh, but it was a complete misbag, but we got on extremely well, because we had a, we all, you know, a, a common aim, really, in there. I know we lived in a, in a barrack room at the 12th Field Training Region, and it's extremely, the conditions were very rugged. But still, the old things still applied. Peacetime, we had to polish the floor to very high standard. 
and be inspected with all the blankets laid out exactly right. Looking back, uh, almost useless in, in a way. But this had a cohesive effect on the squad, and we all got together and did it, you know, clean the bucket or scrub the floor. And that had a, a welding effect, I think, on everybody. So it was an interesting time which I wouldn't have missed for anything. And then many of us went on, not all, went on different octaves, and about five or six of my group went on to Lark Hill Octave. Of course, different people for journalism, but it's still that type of fellow feeling of common, common purpose. Yeah. Uh, but as far as your actual technical training went, yeah. uh, what kind of equipment were you using? Well, we, uh, 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 the, uh, we actually had very little technical training. <clears throat> it was mostly drill. There wasn't much equipment. Mm. In fact, like the British branch out, just after I uh, joined up there, uh, just post Dunkirk. <clears throat> and we were waiting for an invasion uh, on the south coast. We all teed up. And uh, I remember I was told, I'd been in the army six weeks, I think. <clears throat> I was told one, one evening, with a red alert, the Germans were likely to come across the channel. We got a hold of his line, through board and Hampshire. And I was given uh, a gun, 13-pounder field gun, out of the regimental museum, uh, which was in the site of the playground. And I think it was five rounds of ammunition, and taken down to a track. And guns pointed down the track, and we said, right, this is your position. <coughs> you and your five soldiers, it was your in charge, I was in charge. <coughs> and you stay here and um, shoot the panthers when they come up the lane. Well, it was a fairly optimistic role because the gun hadn't been fired, I don't think, since about 1918, therefore it would probably exploded when it was fired. <coughs> but the ammunition was fixed ammunition, and whether it would have gone off, I don't know. But uh, we were drilled in it, we were full of confidence, and we slept that night by our guns. I remember the first time I'd ever slept on a road with a tin hat as a pillow, and it was very, very uncomfortable. But that, so we had no technical equipment, very little. We worked map reading. When we got to the octave, of course, totally different. And the training there was extremely concentrated. I think it was six and a half months to turn out a young gunner field, fieldatory officer. That was the aim. And the training, looking back, was excellent. It was very concentrated. We were very receptive, I think. Uh, we soaked up things pretty well. And I have nothing but admiration for the instructors. They were regular NCOs and officers and uh, the training was well organized a lot of classroom work and a lot of outside work too and it was all on 25 pounders that was the standard gun which had just come into action then one or two occasions we used we had to use the french 75 which which we had a few guns for some reason on the right but basically our training was on the uh, was the 18 25 pound right it's one one barrel the other on the other carriage, mountains, isn't it? It's 18 pounder, 25 pounder mountains. Yeah, that's right. 18 pounder mountain, 25 pounder gun on 18 pounder mountain. Right, the 25 pounder barrel, and of course, later became a 25 pounder. Fantastic gun. So I was brought up on the 25 pounder and served most of my life on it. The training was quite excellent. We lived in very hard conditions in a hut at Lark Hill in the winter. 30 hours to a hut, sleeping, I think, with bunks, three chairs, and with an old coaster over the middle, looking back, and extraordinary. And we had to be very smart. And we had a lot of, quite a lot of drill, and then we also had a lot of technical work out on the guns and, and on exercise and so on, which we loved, and the practical work was excellent. And there was a very high sort of morale 
if you if you some people were backtracked or returned to Europe. Um, but those couldn't keep up the pace or they didn't show leadership qualities. Um, but I was all right, I enjoyed it to the full. And I was very valuable six months and came out of that, I think, thinking myself a, a fairly competent um, field gunner. In fact, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> well, of course, <coughs> yeah. experience of uh, actual service conditions. But in, in this training, you talk about equipment which is coming through now. Uh, did you have the sufficient ammunition to fire off to make it? Yes, we, <coughs> yes. <coughs> we did have ammunition and we did do quite a bit of fine, not nearly enough, no, looking back, and we were rushing quite a lot of ammunition, but we didn't notice at the time, we were delighted to fire any life ammunition, first time we ever fired the guns, but we did, the ammunition was limited very carefully, but we did quite a lot of observation of fire, so we did the gun end, and then we did the observation of fire end, you know, alternatively, so we were trained both on the technical side of the operation of the gun, gun positions and all that side of it, artillery boards, communications of course, very, very important, and then the observation of fire rail, which was uh, conducted on artillery, on the artillery ranges. We had enough to turn on our trade, I think. It was carefully rationed. And where, were these where, where was the range you fired on? Um, at Lark Hill, <coughs> which were the gunner ranges, mm. yes. That were, the the octave was actually at Lark Hill, where the school artillery now is, yeah. and then what has been since 1921, mm -hmm. and which I commanded about 30 years later. Um, so we fired on, on the ranges, um, just on the edge of the Hill ranges, no problem at all, masses of space to manoeuvre. And that was a fascinating time, which we enjoyed it. But then I think we were very efficient, technically very efficient young officers. Did, um, if you manoeuvre, uh, you were obviously uh, limbering, unlimbering, you were yeah. practicing the big gun to action. Yeah. Were, were we in the quad then? Was the quad available for this purpose? I don't think the quad had quite come in then. I'm a little bit that. I think we had to pull them with various other vehicles. We had one or two quads. Yes, we had one or two quads, but not uh, not for every gun. Not for every gun. We had all, a bit of a hodgepodge of vehicles, really. Humbers and Bedfords and so on. But the, the quad was just coming in. But we did all, as you say, we had limbers. And guns. So we could do all the drill coming into action without necessarily having the ammunition stacked in the quad, which is the later thing. Communications, uh, we had the old 19 set, actually, uh, and we spent a lot of time on communications on radio and on telephone, lying out, laying out telephone lines by hand. Um, and and uh, that was our secondary means of communication. And the old telephone, which you put in, wound up and hope somebody would answer the other end. Um, and we also learnt uh, Morse, because uh, in those days the gun was still uh, used uh, in some parts of the world, as I, <laughs> I appreciate later on in life, and they relied on, on the lamp, the lamp daylight signaling short range, it was called, which was Morse. So we learnt Morse as well. So we were quite well trained. What's the importance uh, of, say, the role of forward observation officer, appreciate it? We, we, we taught how to those duties, for instance. Yes, <coughs> very well. Uh, we appreciate it. I think most of us realise that that is the fun, fun side of things, actually. Um, extreme responsible job, therefore, uh, and you had the call of the guns and you were directed the fire, you were entirely responsible for where the fire came, directing it, finding out uh, where the target was. So that was the exciting side of it. Not quite so easy to define 
as the role of the gun station officer who was in charge of the guns. He had a very demanding job, we appreciated, um, both in leadership, um, keeping the thing going, keeping people up to the mark, and also on the technical side. We had artillery boards, and therefore it was important to have your command post really well organized and, 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 and a very good contact with your with all your guns and as well, mostly by voice, megaphone, we didn't have loudspeakers. So that was a rather different aspect of the officer's responsibility to the OP, but we did both. We did both. I think the, the emphasis was on the gun end, because that's the job we would do when we went to the regiment. Yeah. Okay, gun station officer. I've spoken in, in previous interviews to uh, people who were with the, uh, the survey regiments, yeah. of course, that's the work out there. Yeah. <laughs> this was essentially your problem, but really you mastered the theory of that as well. Yeah. And we, we had a we only had elementary survey really because the, the field theory worked on the principle that uh, the survey regimental battery or somebody produced a trick point or a point somewhere near your gun position if you hadn't got a good map and you took your your data your fix and your bearing from that point so how that point was attained was not really outside our responsibility we didn't do pure survey mm. it's only elementary survey sort of not more than about half a mile by pacing or bearing, something like that. But of course, fundamentally, we arrived, uh, we had to rely and we talked to rely on good map reading, you know, to know exactly where we were, and so that's what we could do that. Mm -hmm. And of course, all the bearing was laid out by compass, so basically good map reading was, was a fundamental requirement of the demonstration officer. Although, of course, in Burma, that wasn't the map. <laughs> well, that's another story, that's isn't it? Story <laughs> yeah, right. Now, it's, uh, I just think about the dates here, you were, you got the field training regiment in uh, July 14, so you were there 11 months. No, about seven months, I seven think. Months, seven months, yeah. So that was into early uh, 41, yeah. and you were up to for six and a half months. Six and a half months, yeah. So this will be taking you up into just, you know, what, August 41? Yeah, I think I was commissioned uh, um, August, I think, you know, August um, 41, yeah. the age of 20, about 20, and our passing out parade was commissioned. And a very proud moment when we passed out. Uh, a tremendous uh, atmosphere generated to pass out at this Martin parade. I think a few marshals of Milne took our uh, passing out parade. Was it? I thought he was very old, so he was. And uh, my ambition was to command my troop, which I did. I, I was the under officer, I suppose you call it, and took, took the parade. Troop 37 we were. <clears throat> but although that this, the, that we called it a cane of honour, not full of honour, a cane of honour went to another officer who was very much more clever than me. And he wasn't so good at drill. He didn't command the troop, but he got the cane. It's slightly wrong command me, actually. <laughs> I got the sort of <coughs> second cane, but uh, we passed out in high fury. And then had our uniforms, uh, had already been ordered then, and I remember standing at the bus stop at uh, Lark Hill with my brand new uniform, going off on leave for fortnight before we joined our regiment. Quite a proud moment, actually. We were full of confidence. It's just sort of, I mean, we really felt that we'd been trained well and that, that we had a lot to give the regiment from the doctor. <laughs> we had a lot to that, but we were very, very confident because of our good training, I think. And now, of course, the, the, uh, the, training, the training officers, the MCOs, who had uh, previously said, uh, you'll call me sir, I'll call you sir, the difference is that uh, you'll need it. Now, now, of course, you were sir, yeah. so, uh, yeah. so you're Yeah, yeah, very good relationship actually we always had. They're very high standards of NCOs, no doubt about that. They set the standard of, uh, of what we were going to expect later of our NCO. And of course they were all regulars. And uh, the time short the regiments went to were full of uh, 
At one time, people had just been caught up. They hadn't got the same standards. Yeah. Well, this is this is often, this is the uh, what you often find stuff or in my experience reading that they often have difficulty getting the balance between sending the trained men to the front yeah. or keeping sufficient back to train the next yeah. the next wave. Yeah. What you're saying that they very difficult. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. I think they did it right. Looking at my part, I think they did it right. They had good chaps in the training organisation. Very good people. And. Um, then, of course, I'm a met, like, I joined my first regiment, which was, I think, August 1941. And that was a complete change of, uh, of style and life, really, because then one is a second lieutenant uh, in a, a big regiment, which is an ex-TA regiment, Sussex, second line Sussex TA. This is a... Uh, one on four field regiment, yeah. stationed at, uh, uh, in, in uh, Sussex. He was chief at Sussex, was when I reported. And that's when I started my real officer career. <laughs> Quite a change, though so one thought one knew everything, but uh, you knew everything technically, but you did not know, and you could never be trained into the sort of life of a battery and what goes on. You know, I suddenly found myself being messing off, saying, towards the battery. I knew nothing about messing and food and things, but I had to sort of grapple with that and, and talk about. Uh, whether we wanted sauce or not, spend more money on apples or something, which was quite interesting. And then one got sucked into the routine of, 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 a, of a community, of a gunner battery, uh, which one had very little experience on before. The soldiers were all territorial, mostly territorial, high-grade people, mostly looking back. They'd been, they all lived around Sussex, uh, Brighton, uh, Eastbourne, and in, uh, academically and intellectually, slightly older, than I expected, but very much switched on. And with a typical sort of TA attitude, they didn't like being messed around. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were quite intolerant of regular officers and regular CEOs, because they reckoned they could do things in their own rather relaxed way. And there weren't many regular officers. I think my battery only had one regular officer, um, one battery commander, the rest all TA. Completely different atmosphere, thought I really expected. So a second line TA unit, so who have you raised what? Um, in 38, 39? Yes, I think back in the 38, early 39, the offshoot of another regiment, they formed a completely new regiment from Carter, the previous regiment. I mean, fully recruited and uh, incredible spirit they were, really. And they were quite, then they were quite close to their home, of course, Sussex. Eastbourne was not far down the line from where we were. Um, and uh, I remember being very, very impressed uh, by them. However, we didn't have time to sit around. We, uh, training started as post-Dunkirk, we were just getting ourselves geared up, and uh, we were out on training a heck of a lot. And our first role, I remember, was to go back down the Sussex Downs, where we had a lot of gun positions to repel the possibility of invasion, although that was receding a bit then. And then we started uh, training for, um, under Montgomery, we'd come back, was training the armies in the south in, in what one might call real action and uh, movement and so on. Yes, the so you're not going to come back, of course, after Italy. Yeah. That was what he... No, he came back from 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 Dunkirk. Come back, oh, yes, Dunkirk. Yes, back from Dunkirk. Yeah. As a divisional commander. Yeah. Yes. And he, I think, became commander of a division in the southeast, which we were part of. Mm-hmm. And there were things like you know, battle courses that we, we were we were really sent on these uh, as young officers on a sort of weeks battle course where we lived just in a field and and got wet and tired and soaked and was constantly harried to. To keep up the spirit and acting as different from and so on, there was a tremendous uh, impulse to uh, toughen us up, I think it was, really, in the infantry line. Gunnerell was, uh, was uh, always extremely well done looking back. The, the, the senior commanders 
were Red Cross and the CRA were kind of Brigadier. We were in a 49th in London, we were in Bobel's division, and the Brigadiers were kind of regulars, and they were first class, they knew exactly what they wanted. And they gradually began to increase our technical efficiency as gunners. A, how to shoot, how to reserve fire, and B, how to control the fire from the gun end, uh, which was, uh, they were they were really drawing on the experience of the gunners from the war. The gunners were professionally a very high standard, I think, and this looking man was carried on to the training then very effectively. I think uh, historians who look at the campaigns of the British Army in World War II yeah. generally come to the conclusion that the most efficient arm was the artillery. Did you feel that perhaps you were the most, at the time that you were probably the most effective branch of the, uh, the army? And, um, <coughs> and anyway, I had the experience to, to compare at the time, and we had a great pride. I mean, we knew that what we were doing was right, and, and we got you know, the satisfaction of doing something, having a challenge, and doing it, and seeing the results. Gunners can do that more easily than this company. And we can they set a task of their night occupation, which is very difficult, and getting ready to fire, and then firing a series of, of uh, fire tasks next morning, and making certain that they arrive at the right place at the right time. So at the end of the day, you say, I've done what I told to do. So our task is slightly easier than, say, an infantry company, which has set a task to do an attack, and it sort of goes off the night and loses its way, and perhaps the umpires don't do all this. They can't quantify their success so easily as, as, a, as a gunner can, I think. Or Sapper, for instance, or building a bridge or clearing a mine. But yes, we, we were confident ourselves, but I didn't think I had the experience to say we were better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I hadn't got them. Later on, yes, but not then. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the 25 pounder uh, during the course of the war, they realised it could be used in an anti-tank role as well, yeah. modifications made to allow us to do that. Yeah. Uh, modifications made while you were yeah. in the training? Train yes, we had the, the solid shot, I think a 21 pound solid shot was fired in anti-tank role, instead of the high explosive, and we fired that <coughs> quite a lot with special telescopic sights uh, on the ranges both at Larkin and Lionel Canton. Um, that was great fun. Anyway, <laughs> <coughs> you had a range, a miniature range, where you fired at sort of things moving along bits of uh, wire, and then weren't you efficient at that, you went out and, and fired at, at moving targets on the ranges. And there you could actually see when it was out. Your shot went actually through it, and a bit of phosphorus at the back, so you could see it going, hitting the target or missing it. That was, that was very exciting, and, and it was a very good sort of fit to the gunners, you know, they felt much more involved perhaps than being a little bit remote to some people. Yeah, right. Yeah. That was very effective, and we enjoyed that thoroughly. You mentioned um, General Montgomery, as he was then, uh, yeah. coming, coming back to take command of your division. Mm. Of course, he, he developed a, a very um, characteristic style later when he became commander of the Eighth Army. Yeah. Did you see anything then? Was, was he developing, you might say, the kind of, I said, couple of personalities, but no. the idea that he was a man of particular confidence in? I don't think as a, as a young officer, I mean, you know, the people above, we didn't have much knowledge of. I remember, I think he came and talked to us once. I remember he, in Pestle, obviously a chap you know, dynamic, but uh, you don't get too involved with people above your sort of battery level when you're a junior officer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And obviously later, he, uh, he, yeah. he didn't make himself known to the troop, maybe he's too yeah. often hitting for six type uh, yeah. job, and what you're saying, he did actually come around and address you. So, yeah. uh, oh yes, he did. Um, that, I'm sure he did it later, of course. It was a marvellous uh, way he had a projecting his personality, mm -hmm. in the desert. But my war later on, of course, was uh, General Bill Slim in 14th Army, but a different problem altogether. Now, um, had you uh, any expectations? Eventually, you went out, uh, let's see, to UK 
Yeah, when I think you think of February 42, yeah. and you went out to Salon. Had you had any expectations perhaps of going out to the desert at any point? Expectations what time? Going out to find the desert. Was there any... Was yeah. the train perhaps geared to the... We, um... <laughs> We were, te- well, we were told we, we, we assembled at the Ridge, we had to go through a test uh, at, at, um, on a big range at Dido Canton to be tested as to whether we were fit to go abroad as a gunner regiment. And we passed out the flying colours. And then we just waited to know, we knew we were airmarked for abroad, we didn't know where we were going to. And then suddenly, um, packing crates, uh, crates arrived, and we began being issued with sort of woolsey helmets and, and shorts and khaki drill and sort of thing. So we had a pretty shrewd idea that we were going somewhere hot, but we didn't know where. We didn't learn how to sail, <laughs> talk about it. But the, the kit that we had was, uh, we thought, probably for the desert. You know, it was desert stuff. Very old-fashioned, woozy hell and thing. And then we, but we had no inkling where we were going, except we thought we were going somewhere hot and probably the desert. We marked at, at, um, at Liverpool, and uh, that's quite an interesting story, because my regiment, we were concentrated at Wimborne in Dorset, and there we had to move to Glasgow quite a long way. We moved by two lots. All the soldiers went by train, long and dreary journey, and all the guns and vehicles, of course, drove there, and I went uh, with them. I rode a motorcycle all the way, because I used to enjoy the motorcycle. And we got up there in about four days, I think. Got to King George V dock in Glasgow, a dreary, wet, misty, typical Glasgow day, we were told the shape of a big ship somewhere outside, which we thought looked all right. And then we were told that the bad news is, lads, that the dockers were on strike. So we said, oh, well, good, well, we're going to have a few more days. And they said, no, 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 you've got to load them yourselves. So we got together and got down uh, the gunner regiment to load our own vehicles. It's a highly technical business loading ship. Fortunately, the chief people who operated with cranes were there. So we did all the hard work putting the things on the slings and unloading them in the... Oh, highly dangerous work. It took us about four days, and I think dockers were dying about a day or something. And so that was quite an interesting start. Then we sailed off in a convoy. Uh, we hadn't been at sea more than about um, seven days. We had very rough weather. It was a very big convoy. And uh, of course, the, the, the cry came up from the ship's officers that all the stuff in the hold was, was, was charging about. And there hadn't been lashed down <laughs> Not surprisingly, you're not supposed to leave any space between pancakes. So volunteers were called for to go down the holes and, uh, and lash these things together. We got a few volunteers. It was a very dangerous business because the ship rolled, pancake came crashing across. Fortunately, I don't think we had many injuries, but we put it together. Um, and then we, we went on that long journey to uh, Freetown, which was a terrible place. We weren't allowed off at all, terribly hot. Cape Town, where we disembarked for a bit, uh, and had the most marvellous hospitality from the South Africans. Unbelievable. And then, uh, then we disembarked okay, a short while at Durban, where we again we were fated. And then we got on the Mauritania, I think it was, at Durban. And then we got the buzz that we were going to India, not the desert. And, and we were going in a single ship straight very fast to Bombay. And when we got to Bombay, we realised we weren't going to the desert, we were going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Probably not so pleasant. By that time, the Japs, of course, were well into the war. We knew that our war was going to be against the Japanese. So that's where we disembarked at Bombay. It's odd enough, I left Bombay in um, October 39 on my way back from Salon to get home. So that's where we started from. Got off at Bombay and went straight to, uh, put on a train and went to a place called Secunderabad, uh, which is in the middle of India. Very hot, very hot. 
And we had a rather, we've been six, seven weeks on the transport, ship transport, therefore physically we were not in good shape, although we tried to be. And when we got to Sikandabad, we had a slightly odd commanding officer. He wanted to get us fit, and he said, right, everybody will run and work, and let's say do in England, but of course you can't do that until you're climatized. And we ran and worked and we sweated and we all buried our half of it and went down with heat exhaustion, which can strike you just like that, uh, including myself. I, I went down with, uh, you get a very high temperature, about 104, and then you've got about an hour in which, or two hours in which to get your temperature down, otherwise you're dead, because your blood starts to uh, change composition. And I whisked off to Secunderbad Hospital where we were. And packed in ice, which is a very unpleasant experience, because you, you just when you think your temperature is the same as the ice, they whip it away and put more ice on, and force feed you with salt, because that's the main deficiency. Anyhow, after three or four hours, my temperature came down, uh, and I survived. We didn't lose anybody, but we had a lot of very nearly fatalities due to bad management, that commanding officer, failure to appreciate the problems of climatization. So rich and such as ours, which had just come out of that. Was he an old India hand, the commanding officer? He'd been out in, no, in India some time before, but he was a funny chap. He was looking back, he was a very bad commanding officer, and he was very unpopular. And in fact, it took the regiment, uh, was about uh, three or four months I had to get rid of him. Uh, that was not an easy thing. I didn't know what's happening, I was only a subaltern captain, but I think eventually the second in command had to go and bypass get high authority and say, you know, this chap is, is a menace, really, and he must be changed, and he wants changed. But he'd done quite a lot of harm, I think. However, that was on a regimental level. Of course, at this time, this, if you uh, had left uh, Glasgow in February, I think six, seven weeks, and you would have been March, April, mm. and you arrived in India. Yeah. And of course, this, at this point, the uh, things were pretty desperate in Burma. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, the only reason I think perhaps why this planning uh, officer was so eager to get you classed yeah. in a hurry was perhaps he felt you'd be rushed up there immediately. Was there ever, yeah. ever any question as far as you're aware of being no. thrown in? We didn't know, we had no idea where we'd go. We were just a regiment in the middle of India, a British regiment, trying to pull ourselves together, getting our equipment. We brought our own, all our guns with us, mm -hmm. our equipment, and we really didn't know. Um, Looking back, I don't have any idea what, what was happening in the outside world. We knew that there were a lot of problems. Japs were coming in, Singapore, and all that. And then suddenly we were told that we were going to go to Ceylon. Because obviously that was a place that the Japs, I suppose, would, would head to. And so off we went. We put in a, a train again for about four days, Bombay, on a troop ship. Had all our vehicles taken away from us. Just our guns came with us, and we sailed down to Ceylon. Uh, where we then realised that our role was to form a new division, the 20th Indian Division, which was forming then under Douglas Gracie. Uh, and then we began to realise that, what, that we were part of the 20th Indian Division, and our role was to defend Ceylon, initially to defend Ceylon against attack. The Jap Navy, of course, about that time came in and we had a bit of a, bit of a battle with the Royal Navy, like one or two ships were sunk, and they never actually came again in force. They were all about, uh, submarines were about, but they never attacked it. We like to think that, of course, we were there. The, the, I know the, 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 the Cornwall is sunk in cruisers and a small aircraft carrier only, but, and there were air raids on Ceylon. Yes, there were air raids. While you were there? 
Yes, some just before and some just after, on Columbo, I think. They were quite small, quite small age. But we were very, our role was quite clear, was to defend the country. And we, we did it this, uh, we were very active, we dug a lot of positions all around the southeast coast, in fairly rugged conditions, and the division was, was forming up and defending it. It just came, pieces came all around the place, uh, two brigades, and uh, with Indian division, which meant each brigade had a British battalion, and two Indian cannons and British gunners. So we were defending and beginning to train, beginning to form as a formation under Douglas Gracie, who was ex-Gurkha and was an excellent commander. So that's when we, you know, we were really beginning to, to begin to form up for our future role, which was, of course, in, in Burma. Your parents are still in Ceylon? My parents, sadly, had come back from Ceylon in 1940. Uh, so he'd finished, he'd retired, and I, I, I met them. They were in England before I came out there. Uh, before I left in 41, they'd gone back home. And most of the people I knew in Ceylon, uncles had left. But I did know one or two families there. And occasionally I used to take a few soldiers off and we used to go and do a bit of training up in the uh, up country, up in Neuralia and in the Low Country, uh, basing ourselves on hospitable local um, planters, as they call them, rubber and tea planters, who were only too pleased to see us and were incredibly kind to us. It was a marvelous opportunity to get away and do some individual training. In an area which uh, I knew slightly, mm -hmm. not very well. I used to talk fluent Sinhalese as a boy. I was out there I was about eight or nine, but I'd forgotten practically every word when I went back. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, it was nice just to have a little bit of a little bit of knowledge of the country. Yes. Yes. And we made the most of it. We made the most of it for about eleven months, which is why we were there. You mentioned that the Twenty Indian Division had two brigades. So yeah. That was slightly the strength. So did you get a third brigade added later? I think they. Basically, the composition was two brigades. During Operation Burma, I think there were people attached and detached and so on, but the composition of was basically two brigades. And each, there were at least two, I think there were three Gurkha battalions amongst those, and the rest were Frontier Force Regiment. I can't remember the other one. The Gurkha, of course, were super people, as were the Frontier Force Regiment. We got on awfully well with them. You know, the marvellous mix, I think those who thought about Indian infantry going to the British governors had a brilliant idea because. There was a slightly a technique gunnery requirement, a slightly higher standard of uh, intelligence than, than that their Magidian soldier had. And therefore they were good infantrymen, first class, and we were very good gunners. We got on extremely well. Later on they formed some gunner, Indian gunner regiments as well, later on in the war. But initially it was all British gunners. And an excellent, excellent sort of setup it was too. No problem at all there. Of course, Salon would have been a, a good introduction to requirements of uh, jungle warfare in the, yeah. and using using guns in the jungle which must have yeah. posed different problems and a whole totally new world really nobody knew anything about it <laughs> um, as I said at the beginning we've been trained in sort of gunnery and be able to see targets say about half a mile away or two or three miles away and we were told again to Burma and of course we didn't know because we hadn't been to Burma but we were told that people had been there that the jungle was a fairly inhospitable place and the visibility was very, very limited, perhaps three or four yards, or ten yards. So how on earth do you work the guns? So we went off in the jungle in um, in Ceylon. It was a very dry jungle. It wasn't the sort of wet, damp jungle of Burma. It was arid, very hot, very malarial. And we set about trying to work out technique of how to use guns in, those, in that particular environment. A lot of people said you can't use artillery. But then if you can't use artillery, you're in disadvantage straight away. And got a fundamental fire support you need. So 
we set about trying to how we could fire the guns and how we could find gun positions. I know we had to, we talked about cutting trees down. We used to sort of deploy just at the side of a track, perhaps in one or two guns instead of a proper gun position, and using high elevation, which twenty five pounder could fire high elevation, to get over the trees. Um, survey and contact between gun positions, of course, was a nightmare, but there was no map of that in non existence. We just had to make our own uh, survey. And then, of course, the OP officers who were with the infantry, their visibility sometimes was about 10 yards. <laughs> and although they knew, say, the enemy were, say, 400 yards away, they had to perhaps climb up a tree or get a little hill, and you couldn't see. Observation of fire is very difficult because the shells burst inside the jungle. You didn't see anything. Occasionally, after a bit, four or five minutes, you see a bit of smoke coming up, but you didn't see the shell burst. Therefore, you tended to rely very much on sound. If you, you heard the bang and you get an idea of where it was and you correct it accordingly, gradually coming over to where you, the target was. Uh, very painstaking and a highly skilled operation um, to get the fire out. Anyway, of course, not only did we not know where they were, they had no idea where they were. <laughs> and they're not, their standard map reading was much worse than ours, we like to think. And, and therefore, we often used to fire something in the air, an airburst. And get over and watch it. We knew roughly where that was according to our grid system, and the infantry would relate themselves to that. And you know, we were 500 yards west of it. So it was all, it was all quite a new world, actually. But we were, everybody was determined that the gunner should be able to support. And the emphasis was on lighter and lighter equipment. Uh, it was quite clear to us that um, 25 pounders, we knew it, on the broad chassis was difficult in that sort of country. And therefore, eventually, um, before we moved to Burma, we were not to Doctor India. We were we were equipped with a 25 pound on a very narrow chassis, and also a 3.7 half on wheel chassis, the old pack pack gun, and also um, mortars, three inch and 4.2 inch mortars. That was our equipment. So the emphasis became more and more on lighter equipment that could be moved about easier. But the, the, the need for gunner support, I mean, was absolutely fundamental, as was proved later on in the campaign. We haven't got gunner support. You're a bad way. <laughs> the, how you talk about the change in the chassis, lighter guns, uh, how was, how did you move the 25 pounders around? You didn't have quads. No, initially in Salon we had terrible things that had been left by the Australians, great big, uh, vehicles which they'd had from the desert, and the Australians were called back when the Japs were starting to defend their own country, and they left a lot of their equipment in Salon. <clears throat> Great big towers, I can't remember, they were quite unsuitable for, gun, for jungle work. But in the long run, in the end, uh, we, the end product of was we had narrow 25-pounders and 3-7-hours, towed by jeeps, no limbers, didn't have limbers, towed by jeeps, which are marvellous gun and marvellous vehicle for towing. Yeah, they had the horsepower to do it. Just. Just with a bit of manpower behind it, I mean, you're often pulling the guns with the tow ropes or pushing them. 37 power was all right. You could manage the 37 power. 25 pounder was a bit heavy, and in fact, when they were in the race and went to Bama, we lost our 25 pounder. We just had 37 hours and um, three inch mortars, three inch and 4.2 mortars, so we lost 25 pounders initially. 3.7 hours, so that's the last the screw gun. Yeah, a screw gun on, on wheels. On wheels. Yes. So mm-hmm. it could be essentially dismantled in. It could be, uh, not quite so quick as the screw gun, you could take its barrel off and so on, but we, we didn't do that very much, and we preferred just to pull it and get it down.
or not. Yeah. So we were just talking at the end of that tape about um, your major equipment, which is one of them eight characters. Yeah. Because it's suitable for the jungle. You said you were in Salon for eleven months. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, then you were you moved to.